Welcome to Salem Alliance Church. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit us at salemalliance.org. This week's message is by Steve Fowler. Hey, um, we're starting a new series called Reset. And um, I am a big fan of reset buttons. I love reset buttons. Um, I remember a lot of years ago, I was uh, using one of those vacuum cleaners. It's got you know, the, kind of the canister, long hose, and it's got that, uh, the head on it. And I was vacuuming up after a fishing trip, and I had, had a bunch of uh, crud and stuff and all kinds of grime got in it, and it, the beater bar thing stopped working. And, um, and so I had to you know, shut it down and turned the head over and saw this bunch of fishing line and all kinds of clutter and stuff in there. So I got uh, some scissors, cut all the line out, cleaned all the gunk out and clutter up, and then it hit the reset button that was on the little head, and that thing fired up and worked great, and Trina never knew what happened. I love reset buttons, and they are on a lot of things. I mean, they're on garbage disposals, water heaters, they're on your Wi-Fi routers when the connection, there's a disconnection happening. Um, even on your smartphones, there's a factory reset if things get really, really bad, and you have to do a factory reset. You can do that on your phone, and this series, in, in a way, is, is kind of like a bit like hitting the reset button on our spiritual life. I kind of doing a factory reset, if you will, on, on our journey with Christ, because what happens is through time, the clutter, the information, sometimes the false narratives about who God is and who we are kind of get us off track a little bit, and, um, and so it's good every once in a while to hit that reset button and, and just kind of let these truths sink in again. And if, if you're back this week from a, a weekend here, last week at Easter and you came to the cross, we're really glad you're here. This is really a great series to, to, to begin with us on. Um, and, uh, and we're just gonna be talking about about two or three weeks, uh, talking about this idea of resetting. A lot of you know that I grew up in, uh, in Asia. I was born in Hong Kong. I grew up in Southeast Asia, moved to the States when I was 18. And I know a lot of you, there's quite a few in the room I know that have, have gone to different places and adjusted to a different culture, or maybe you moved to the U.S., like I did, and you had to learn a new culture and adjust to a new culture. And I learned some things about American culture when I came, uh, came to college in the U.S. And one of the things I learned quickly uh, is that we are a very competitive culture. We like to compete we are a very productive culture. Uh, we like to get things done. And uh, oftentimes, we, we like to measure uh, value by how much we get done. And um, this happens in a, in a bunch of areas of life. I mean, simple things like even applying for a job. I, I didn't even know how to apply for a job. I had some friends that, that uh, had a college, and they sort of kind of count me connected. Actually got me an interview for United, at United Parcel Service, UPS. And I know I got the interview because of them. And I know I got a first day on the job because of them. And, uh, and when I was hired, I was put on this 90-day probation period. And my friends told me, look, Steve, in those 90 days, you have to be like the ideal employee. Um, don't ever be late. Don't call in sick. Uh, try to make, you're going to make mistakes, but make as few mistakes as possible because you have to prove yourself of being worthy of being at this company. You make 90 days, you're in, but you, like, you got to be just the ideal employee for 90 days. And so you just got to know that. And so, man, that pressure was on me. Um, and, 
and it just was, I mean, I was stressed out and I was trying to perform well. I was in this giant trailer the first couple days. I'm going to work at two in the morning. I'm, I'm just shoving boxes out. And uh, about three or four days, I got put on this line. Uh, it's called a preload line, big conveyor belt, boxes going by. And, um, and, and there's these brown package cars behind me. And you're pulling off these boxes and putting them on the package car. I had to memorize zip codes and where they changed in the city. I was living in San Francisco. And I had to memorize you know, sections of the package car and make sure packages got in the right spot. I, when I started dating Trina, I would, you know, we would drive around San Francisco. We'd be on you know, 200 Bush Street. And I'd say, well, this is uh, zip code 94104. The, the zip code breaks at uh, the 500 block to 94133. And if a package was being delivered to this building, it would go in section 139 of this package car. And she would smile and act like she was impressed. And I, it, I, all this information was being poured into me and I was trying my very best to just make the 90 days. In fact, I was told that on, on day 90, the way you know if you made your 90 days, the way you knew if you measured up, if you have proved yourself, is that if you had a time card on the time card rack, you could pick it up, and the moment you punched in, you were good to go. If there was not a time card there, you had to go ask for a supervisor so you could talk to them, and the supervisor told you that you didn't make the cut. So day 89, I finished my, my, my shift, and I go, go to college and you know, do classes and all that. I can't sleep that next night because I'm stressed out, and I get to work early, and they haven't even put the time cards out yet. And I'm just sitting there waiting. Like, I wonder if I made it. And, and then the supervisor comes out, puts all the time cards up there, and I take a deep breath, and I walk up, and there's a time card with my name on it. I grab it quickly, punch in. Yes, I made it. I proved myself. I did it, which is a big deal for me, because, I mean, my parents were on the other side of the world. I had no family around, and I, I, had, to, I had to make a living and, and pay for college and all of that. But it was exhausting, I was so worn out. Wanted to call in sick the next day, but I didn't. Um, and, and you have this experience too. You, have, you, you live in this prove yourself culture. You live in this, I gotta measure up, I gotta produce, I need, I need to get it done. And, um, and you deal with it at school and your grades and in sports and applying for colleges and in your sales job and uh, even in relationships, we do this. Um, we, we, we're, we're trying to prove ourselves to one another. And frankly, what happens is it exhausts us. It wears us out, which is why I think the reason that Psalm 23 is one of our favorite psalms is because we're so tired. <laughs> Lord is my shepherd, shall not be in want. He leads me by still waters. To green meadows, he restores my soul. Yes, that's what I need. I think it's also why we love Matthew 11, verse 28. Come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. It's not heavy, it's not burdensome. I'm not gonna weigh you down. And we go, I want that. And the reason is, is because we're living in this prove yourself world. And as we do, here's where we need to hit the reset button. We're trying to prove ourselves, measure up, and, and, and show that we meet everyone's expectations. And when it comes to our life of faith, which is completely the opposite, we begin to apply this culture to kingdom culture, and we approach our relationship with God in the same way of I've got to prove myself to God. I hope that God will be pleased with me. I hope I measure up. And it's a toxic cocktail. 
It's not the gospel. But we end up embracing, we would never say we'd do this, we'd end up embracing this sort of this works-based, this performance-based approach to our friendship with God that I've got to do this, I've got to be involved in that, and I've got to do this today because I need to please God. And I, I want you to hit the reset button with me and under, help you understand a powerful truth that is in the gospel. Now, if you've got your Bibles, go to Matthew chapter 3. I want to read us a short passage of the account of the baptism of Jesus. It's on page 1,517 in your pew Bibles. So if you, got, if you, if you don't have a, a Bible, grab the one in front of you. Go to that page number, 1517. Two columns on the page. Go to the column on the right. Um, and then there's a, a little uh, heading there. that says the baptism of Jesus. That's where I'm going to begin reading here in a couple seconds. Um, and there's like a little number there. You'll see a 13. And that is the verse number. So here we go. Then Jesus went from Galilee to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. But John, and John the Baptist now we're talking about, John tried to talk him out of it. I am the one who needs to be baptized by you, he said. So why are you coming to me? But Jesus said, it should be done, for we must carry out all that God requires. So John agreed to baptize him. After his baptism, as Jesus came up out of the water, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and settling on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. We'll stop right there. Jesus, it's been 30 years, three decades, since that silent night in Bethlehem. It's been three decades since Jesus came, born as a baby, God setting, Jesus setting aside his divine prerogatives, fully God, but embracing full humanity. It's been 30 years, and now Jesus' ministry is about to begin. He's about to do his miracles. He's about to preach on the kingdom of heaven. He's headed to the cross. There will be an empty tomb some three and a half years into the future. But at the front end of it, Jesus is baptized in water, and then he's baptized in the Spirit as the dove comes onto him. He's led by the Spirit into the wilderness. But before he goes into the wilderness, the Father declares publicly... Everyone hears this. There's a crowd there at this baptismal site. Everyone hears, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. I take great joy in him, whatever your translation says. This is my son in whom I delight in. And, and that seems a bit unusual to me. Here's why. We are used to speaking words of affirmation and compliments after someone has done something good. Right? Right? I mean, I've got great parents, and when I clean my room, they say, great job, we knew you could do it. You know, uh, when you brought the report card home, good job, these classes, work a little hard in these classes, and, um, you know, good job on a basketball court, and, you know, you people say this to you as well. Typically, we speak words of affirmation, we speak compliments to people after they've done something good. Jesus has not done anything the timing seems to be off, doesn't it? I mean, he's gonna go into the wilderness, be tempted by Satan. He's gonna withstand the temptation. He's gonna come out of the wilderness in the power of the Spirit. And wouldn't that be a wonderful time for, for the Father in that synagogue where, where Jesus is gonna read from, from the book of Isaiah? Wouldn't that be a fantastic time in front of the Pharisees to say, that's my boy, that's my kid. 
in whom I take great joy. That would have been a fantastic place. Or how about his first miracle? The wedding at Cana. There's a crowd there. That'd be a fantastic place to say, that's my kid. That's my son in whom I'm well pleased. Or really, the, here would have been a fantastic moment. What about when Lazarus is coming out of the tomb? You know, he's been dead for several days, and the crowd's there. Wouldn't that be a fantastic time for the father to say, that's my son in whom I'm well pleased? But he doesn't do that. The father, and there's another time he does say this, but before Jesus does a thing, the father says, that's my son. And I'm proud of him. And I take delight in him. A lot of years ago, there was a journalist who was talking to Billy Graham and uh, said to Billy, you know, Billy, you're, you're like history, I mean, all of history, you're like one of the greatest evangelists that ever lived. There's gotta be like a special neighborhood for you in heaven. I mean, your, your house is probably gonna be next door to D.L. Moody's, and his house is gonna be next door to like John Calvin, and then, you know, Luther's gonna be across the street. I mean, what a fantastic neighborhood to live in heaven. That's probably where you're gonna be. He's, he's joking, and, and Billy's coming, doing his aw shucks kind of thing, and um, saying, no, that's, that's not true, and um, and, and so uh, the, the journalist then poses a question to Billy Graham. and says, Billy, what do you hope to hear when you first enter into heaven? And he said, well, that's easy. I, I, I hope I hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And the journalist sort of picked up on his pause at the beginning and his words, I hope. He said, well, don't you think you're gonna hear, well done, good and faithful servant? Look, look, look at all you've done. And he goes, I don't know for sure, I, 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 but I, I hope that's, that's what I hear. And nothing against Billy Graham. And Billy Graham's an amazing man, lived a fantastic life, touched so many lives. How many in here have led to Christ through Billy Graham, watching TV? Okay, so every service I've asked this question. People have come to Christ through some association with Billy Graham. Fantastic ministry. But you know what I thought when I heard Billy Graham say, I don't know if I'm gonna hear, well done, good and faithful servant? I thought, if Billy Graham doesn't know, if he's gonna hear well done, good and faithful, I do not have a snowball's chance in Palm Springs, California. <laughs> What'd you think I was gonna say? <laughs> if he doesn't know, if he's gonna hear well done, I don't have a shot. And it really, this is where we gotta hit, hit the reset button. Again, I'm not, I'm not taking shots at Billy Graham. I, I think what he's trying to do, he's trying, he's trying to be humble. But this, this is, is kind of how we get trapped in this really exhausting cycle of trying to perform and measure up. Now, Romans chapter eight, Romans eight says this, for all who are led by the spirit of God are children of God. Let me just stop right there. You, as a Christ follower, if you've ever put your faith in Jesus Christ, you have now become a child of God. You're born of the spirit, regenerated, and there's a part of you that was dead, spiritually dead. Now the Spirit gave birth to Spirit. Now you've been regenerated. You are alive in Christ. You're led by the Spirit of God, and now you're children of God. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Why are slaves fearful? Slaves are fearful because they're wondering if they've done enough and if they've done it well enough. And if they haven't done it well enough, there could be punishment. So they live with that nagging fear of, am I good enough? Is my work good enough? That's what Paul's getting at here. 
Instead, that's not you. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. And now we call him Abba Father. Now we call him Daddy. Now we call him Papa. That's actually what the Hebrew, uh, the meaning of that word Abba is. It's a toddler talking to his dad. You're not a slave. You're a child of God. Now, let me just put this in a bit of a diagram that a guy named Mike Breen uh, uh, drew. It's very helpful. You got three points on the, on the triangle, father, identity, obedience. I'll walk you through each of these and sort of explain this because this is how our friendship with the father needs to happen. First of all, the father extends grace to us and gives us a fresh start in his son, Jesus Christ. We have a new identity. We are now sons and daughters of the most high God. This is all his grace. This is all his doing. It's why we sing songs like Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. We understood the situation that we were in before. Now we've tasted this amazing grace and it's all Jesus. Ephesians chapter two. Some of you have this, these verses memorized. It says, God saved you by his grace when you believed and you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. We have a new identity. We are children of God. And when that sinks in, that once we were not a people, but now we are a people, that once we lived in the kingdom of darkness, but now we live in the kingdom of light, that gives birth by the spirit to desire and freedom to obey. And our obedience actually is an expression of worship. It's an expression of love to the Father. This is how the friendship works. God's been so amazingly kind to us. We've experienced such amazing grace. And that just gives birth to, I can't believe he chose me. He adopted me and his family. And so desire sort of just bubbles out of me. And I wanna, I wanna worship this God. I wanna do what he says that, that, he, that he's calling me to. And that's just gonna be like my expression of love. But often what happens is when that cocktail is mixed, we end up going in the wrong direction. We approach the Father from the completely opposite end of things. We, we go, actually, out of fear, we obey. We're, we're fearful, and the reason we're fearful is because we've actually embraced slavery. Our obedience is motivated by, I hope, I hope this makes him happy. I hope, I, I'm, I'm trying to please him, I'm trying to do the right things. And actually what that, what that does is it gives, it gives birth to this fear because you're wondering, is it enough? And it's this bondage, this slavery because you're living with this nagging idea. And then it actually gives birth to shame because you're approaching the Father wondering if indeed you are good enough. You know the good stuff you've done, but you all know, also know the bad stuff you've done. So you come to him in shame instead of coming to him in, uh, in love. And we gotta hit the reset button on this because this, let me tell you something. The disciplines that were meant for you to draw near to God end up being distorted and perverted to the place where we end up saying, well, my relationship with God is good because I do, I do all the right, I check all the, right, all the boxes. Versus my relationship with God is good because of what Jesus did on the cross. And when you do the check the box thing, it's exhausting and it leads to fear, leads to slavery, leads to shame, and we gotta hit the reset button on this and go in the right direction. 
Because all the performance that was necessary for you to be made right with God was done by Jesus Christ on the cross. It's why he shouted, it is finished. The mission's done, it's finished, the work is done, all the performance that is necessary to make you acceptable to God has been done on the cross. So you don't, your behavior ends up becoming worship. Now some of you are already thinking, well wait, 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 wait. Are you saying that how I live my life doesn't matter? No, I'm not, I'm not saying that because actually, if you remember who you were before you met Christ, and what he's done for you, you will want to obey and worship him, but your salvation as a gift is not predicated on your performance. But Steve, what, I mean, what, what if, does that mean I can just do whatever I want and God's gonna forgive me? Do you know that, that that's the same question that the apostle Paul posed to a church in Rome? What shall we say then? He's just sort of laid this whole thing out. He's explained grace much better than I could. What shall we say? Shall we keep on sitting so that grace may abound? His response is, of course not. Because when you realize what Christ has done for you on the cross, when you understand that you have this new identity, it gives birth to, to worship and to love, and, and you don't want to walk that old way of living anymore. And, and, and even when we make mistakes, we know those sins are already forgiven. It's so freeing, isn't it? To know that my motive in following God is not fear, my motive in following God is love. And some of us need to hit the reset button on this and let me just wrap up by just giving you a couple practical ways to do that. Here's a couple practical ways that you can just live this out. First one is to believe that you please him. Now, that's kind of a hard thing to do when you think about stuff in your life and you think about your past maybe and how could God be pleased with me because of that? Well, here's how, because of the cross. Because what Jesus did, he paid all the sin penalty for you. And now, now he delights in you. Like he hears your name and he smiles and says, that's my son, that's my daughter in whom I'm well pleased. And some of you may be thinking, well, you know, that, that was Jesus, that was God's son and I, you know, I'm not Jesus and we all know that. But the reality is, is that Jesus isn't playing the God card there. He's, he's set aside his divine prerogatives. He is full, fully human. And he's showing us the life that we can live by the power of the Spirit. We need to believe that we please him. Not because of anything you've done, but because of what Jesus has done. And one of the practical ways we can get this into our, into our, our, our heart and our souls, um, this, this phrase, I bring great joy to my heavenly Father. Some of us need to write this down and put it on a mirror, put it on our dashboard, put it someplace where we're gonna see it, and we need to speak this out over ourselves. In fact, even this morning, we're gonna speak this out over ourselves. We're gonna say this out loud, a declaration. There's a big difference from someone telling you that you please God and trying to fit that in your brain and fit that in your heart and get that in your spirit. It's a whole nother thing when you declare it because then you start to feel it. You feel the emotion attached to it. So here's what I want us to do. I'm gonna get us started. I'm gonna, I'm gonna read this phrase. I want you to speak this out. And we're probably gonna have to do this several times because some of you are not gonna speak very loud because you wanna make sure the person beside you, in front of you, talks, talks loud and so you're not the only one talking. Okay, so this may take a couple times. But let's just declare this over ourselves and over each other. I'll get us started. 
I bring great joy to my heavenly Father. I don't know if you believe it yet. We gotta, we gotta try that again, okay? Let's, let's try it. Say this with me. I bring great joy to my heavenly Father. Now here's the deal. A lot of you don't even smiling. Smile when you say this, okay? This is actually supposed to be pretty meaningful that you once were, you once were a nobody. Now you're somebody because of Jesus, right? So let's try this again, smiling, believing. I bring great joy to my heavenly Father. I'm watching you, I'm watching you, okay? Can you feel it? Can you, can you just feel the difference? And I speak that out over myself. Some of us need to write that down and speak it. We need to speak it over our spouses, speak it over our kids, speak it over ourselves. It's powerful. This is who you are. This is why it's called the good news. All right, so here's the second thing we can do. We can let go of our spiritual insecurity. Some of you are living this life like you're on a 90-year probation period. I'm serious. You're, you're, you're trying to do all the right things and hoping that you measure up. Friends, the work is done. Hit the reset, reset button on this one. You are secure in Christ. No one can steal you from his hand. You belong to him. You're his son. You're his daughter in whom he is well pleased before you even go do anything. He delights in you. In fact, some of you just need to hear his words of delight. So let's just bow our heads and close our eyes and just let Jesus speak to us. Jesus, what would you say to us today? What are you saying, Lord? Lord, I just, I see a wall and I see you removing bricks one at a time. And there's some in the room that their past is a major obstacle to receive this kind of love. Oh, Jesus, I thank you that even in our unbelief, you still love on us. Would you give us the vision and the ability to see your face as you look at us? Thank you, Lord, for making it possible for us to be your friend. We're so grateful. We pray this in your name. Amen. Salem Alliance Church is a community of Jesus followers located in downtown Salem, Oregon, and we are passionate about our city being a city at peace with God. If you have a request that we could pray for, please email us at prayers at salemalliance.org. You can view today's entire service online at livestream.com backslash Salem Alliance.